Good morning, Godspeak. Great to be with you on this Sunday morning. Pastor Rob is getting some much-needed rest. He has been carrying the load for you guys for a year. All the message, 250-plus live streams night after night. And so uh, I know that you guys are thankful that he can get a little downtime, and I told him I'll carry us through. Amen. So we want to start, before I even give you the title of our message, this is our last Sunday together of 2020, right? And it has been admittedly an insane year. And this is the video that shows us just how insane. If you would have, just think in your mind, a year ago at Christmas, could you have imagined this? Yesterday, we told you about the mom who was tased and handcuffed at a middle school football game after not wearing a mask. Well, that story has sparked emotion around the country with strong opinions on both sides. Here's Stephen Fabian. Video of a mom tased and hauled off in handcuffs at her son's middle school football game is sparking intense debate across America. Of course, no, it should have never come to this. Does this mean that someone can actually be arrested for not wearing a mask? Alicia Kitts was sitting in the stands with her family when, according to a statement from the cops, a police officer assigned to the school told her several times that she needed to put her mask on. When cops say she refused and wouldn't leave, she was advised she was under arrest for criminal trespassing. What happened next is shocking. New video of the confrontation shows Alicia Kitts struggling with the officer. Suddenly, the taser comes out. Tase somebody over a mask. Tasing this lady over not wearing a damn mask. Spectator Tiffany Kennedy shot the video. That was just the craziest thing I've ever seen, ever, as a result of not wearing a mask. This officer could have handled him a lot lot better than he did. Skylar Stewart is the father of the youngster who watched the terrifying incident. Why not just put the mask on and this whole thing could have been avoided? You know, they weren't hurting anybody. Uh, This mask mandate is is absolutely ridiculous. The video shows she has a mask in her back pocket, but her lawyer says she didn't put it on because she has asthma. Officer Chris Smith is getting support today from local citizens who showed up at the Logan Police Department. Ohio's governor is also weighing in. Well, I would just say to people who are judging the school, people who are judging that officer, they were trying to follow guidelines with the sole purpose of they wanting their kids to play. Alicia Kitts has been charged with resisting arrest and criminal trespassing. A year ago, could you have even imagined that that could happen in the United States of America? Look at all of us without our mask. Now, this is the crazy thing. You know, the Bible says that when a culture gets so upside down because they've turned their back on God, they call good evil. And they call evil good. We have lost our way. Everything's inverted. 
We are far from God as a nation, therefore we're far from wisdom and reason and rationale. But I have some good news, right? You want some good news too, right? (laughs) This Gallup poll just came out on December 12th, and they do this Gallup poll since 2001, and it says nearly every demographic subgroup saw the state of their mental health decrease from 2019 to 2020. However, among Christians who attend religious services weekly, 46% classified their mental health as excellent. That would be you guys, right? (laughs) So coming together, and and isn't it crazy, the same thing. The government says church is non-essential. According to that Gallup poll, right, it's the only group that continually, week after week, got filled with faith, hope, and love. That's the dynamic of who we are. Now, we're going to continue our study through the book of Genesis. Pastor Rob kicked it off. Pastor Micah continued on with the encouragement of Oliver, his six-year-old. For those who were with us last week, if you want a Bible, raise your hand. They'll get you one. We'll be reading in our message, The Beginning of Everything, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 14. Get you a Bible. Find your way to Genesis. It's great, isn't it, for Genesis because it's the first book. Do you remember when you were a young Christian and you came to church and they would say, open in your Bible and you had one in your lap and had no clue? You were too embarrassed because somebody was sitting next to you because you didn't want to look at the table of contents in the front. And I just want you to know, it's okay. Everybody's got to start somewhere in reading the Bible. I ran out of church so fast on the last song as a young Christian for two or three years because I was so afraid somebody was going to stop me and ask me a Bible question because I knew absolutely nothing. I wasn't raised in church. Hey, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no rain, to till no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden... To water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and the onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth is the river Euphrates. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we pray that you would now nourish our souls, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, you may be seated. The beginning of everything. If you want to understand not only humanity, civilization, God, and community, even as we see the crisis going on in our nation in this year, you can go back to the book of Origins. Webster's Dictionary defines Genesis, the origin or coming into being of something. But in this context, chapter 1 and 2, everything comes into being. It's the beginning of everything. And I like Webster's second illustration. It's just what popped up when I Googled it. The genesis of a new political movement. And I thought that's apropos. We need a new political movement because the way we want to change our nation is through our faith in God and getting involved in our communities. Praying, voting, speaking, running for office, getting to office so that we can change policies so that we can have sanity back in our government so that we would be a decent society where as good is good and evil is evil. And the two, and may the two never meet as far as the confusion of the issue. But when we begin, chapter 1 laid out all of these things. We're going to review them a little later if we have time, if time permits. But we look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Isn't it wonderful when you finish something, a project? Can you imagine finishing all of creation? Now, the Genesis story is a simple story. It's a supernatural story. And depending on where you're at in your faith and your theology, it might be an overwhelming story. For some of you, it may be a fictional story. For some of you, it may be mythology. But for me, I learned a long time ago, if I could believe Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible was a piece of cake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The God that I serve is a God that is so big that when he wanted to speak the world into existence and the universe as we know it, he didn't need more than six days to get it done. Now, there are those who have the long day theory, you have the gap theory, you have those who try to merge evolution and creation together so that they're a little bit more uh, acceptable in academic circles. There's lots of reasons that people compromise or they don't want to be laughed at. But the Bible says when we have a childlike faith, the God that I serve is a big God. And some people's God, just candidly, when you talk to them, they got a pretty small God. It's not much different than the little statue on their dash. (laughs) You know, it's a pretty small God. But when God finished these six days of incredible creation that we look around and we enjoy and we see today, he said, it says he was finished. His works were finished. God finishes what he starts in creation. When Jesus came... We see in John 19.30 that he finished the work of salvation for you and I as he hung on the cross. It said, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When he had accomplished saving your soul and my soul, and all who would believe in him, 
in the years to come and fill up the throne room of heaven with his people. He said, I finished it. But have you ever wondered if God's going to finish with you? You ever been troubled by that? I hope I, I hope I can. I hope I make it. I hope I want you to know that you have, can have absolute confidence that you're going to finish if you're simply trusting and abiding in Jesus. I love the promise that Paul gave the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He began a good work, and he's going to complete it. Just like he finished creation, just like Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross, and then he finished the work of conquering death as he rose from the dead, he's going to finish the work in you. You go, you have no idea what a mess my life is. It's okay, my life's been a mess too, right? Even in my Christian walk. I come from the land of the continental divide where the Snake River begins and ultimately is going to end up in the Pacific Ocean. It starts in Jackson Lake. It comes off these epic Grand Tetons. If you've ever stand, stood there with the peak 13,700 feet, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And that watershed fills up Jackson Lake just across the border of Idaho in Wyoming. And then it begins to make its way all the way across my home state of Idaho. But the funny thing about that Snake River, some people, you know, that Snake River, sometimes it's going north, south, east, west. It's going all over the place. And I liken it to some people's walk with God. <laughs> sometimes you don't know what direction they're going, right? Seems like they're flowing uphill. <laughs> What's going on? They got this twist. They got this turn. They went through that conflict. And, you know, there's just ups and downs. Life, life as a human is not static. It's dynamic, meaning when you get all these different inputs into it, I'm a pilot, and so I flew this little uh, 1965 Mooney airplane that I owned. And, and the inputs, you just had to gently, I mean, you put the smallest input, and it changes your whole orientation, whether it's, it, it's rudders or it's yoke, whatever it might be. And you have all these things coming at you, wind trying to blow you sideways, relationships, financial struggles, health issues, relational difficulties, and you're all over the place. Some people think the Snake River was named because it, it looks like a, a, you know, a snake. But it actually was a misunderstanding between these Indians that were at the bottom of Shoshone Falls and they were salmon fishing. And when the first pioneers showed up there and they were trying to communicate with them with sign language, they asked them, what's the name of the river? And uh, the Indians said this, and they thought they meant snake. No, it was, it was fish. It was salmon. So it should be, but never mind. Anyway, I digress into a bit of a, a history lesson. Anyway, the thing is, is that this Snake River, it goes, and it goes to the lowest canyon or the steepest walled canyon in the United States. It's called Hell's Canyon on the border of Idaho. And man, maybe you're in Hell's Canyon right now, right? It, it's rough. This year is kind of like Hell's Canyon, isn't it? But eventually that water that started as pristine snow, melting into a lake, traversing through a river with all of its twists and turns, going through Hell's Canyon, dumps into the Columbia River, and it ends up in the Pacific Ocean. I want you to know that God is going to finish the work that he started in you. He's going to get you to the place that he wants you to be.
That's who he is. He's faithful. And he finishes strong what he begins. And we see that here even in creation. In verse 2, after all of this work, we see God resting. In verse 2 and 3, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God did not rest like you do and I do after a hard day of work on a Saturday out in the yard. He's not exhausted. He wasn't wiped out. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present at once. The God that we serve, that's not the deal. The deal is, is that he finished something, and when you finish something, it's nice to rest. You sit down after a long day or a long week of work, six days of work, and then you rest. Isn't it great when you've been going full tilt? We did, did that this last week. I went from a very busy week into traveling to Florida to uh, the Stu- Student Action Summit in Palm Beach, Florida. It was from morning to night with all of the things coming all the way back just to run into three services for Christmas Eve. And man, by Christmas morning, you know what my gift was? I slept in. That was my Christmas gift, Christmas morning. Just sleep in. Just crash. And you're so thankful. But there was also something deeply satisfying about waking up that morning and going, man, this has been an awesome week, hasn't it? It's been so fruitful. These four thoughts really stand out why God has now given us in the creation story. He gave us an example. Hey, listen, everyone. It's universal. Do you know the entire world is on a seven-day week? The entire world. There have been times that people have tried to change that. Can't get away from it. It's built into humanity. It's built into culture. He rested because he finished his work, number one. Number two, he was establishing a weekly pattern for humanity for us to rest one day at the end of six days. And he was highlighting the blessing of one day of rest per week. Your body needs to rejuvenate. You need to unplug. You need to unwind. You need to, and that was the thing. Oftentimes, I don't know if you're like me, but for those six days when I have something to do the next day, I don't sleep that good the night before because I go to bed thinking about it and I wake up in the morning thinking about it. But when I have my day off, it's like I got nothing in the morning. I turn off my phone, out goes the lights, I sleep like a rock. And lastly, he was anticipating the day when we could have the rest for our souls 24-7 in Jesus. You see, Jesus is the ultimate picture and fulfillment of Sabbath rest for the soul. Check this out. It tells us in Isaiah 48, 22, who gets no rest or no peace? The wicked. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. You know, your guilty conscience, when you try to take time off and you just rest, the first thing I thought about, would think about when I was not walking with God is how I was not right with God. <laughs> so it was kind of a bummer. So I had to keep my mind busy, you know, turn on the TV, get something blaring, keep my mind distracted. I read this fascinating study years ago that in the early days of astronaut training, when they were trying to uh, assimilate, sim- simulate a Uh, pilot going into outer space, they put him in an isolation tank, total darkness, for like, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours, whatever it was. And without fail, all of the pilots, when they were put in there and they turned out the lights and they were isolated for that 24 hours, it took them hardly any time at all before they started thinking about God. 
Isn't that something? I have this cousin, and he's been a meth addict off and on through, uh, you know, different times in his life. And he would tell me every time he goes into the woods, he does these hunting trips outside of Yellowstone where he's uh, guiding people to go elk hunting, and he's contending with grizzly bears. And, I mean, it's pretty crazy every year the stories that he has. I mean, one year he's got this big tree, and there's an elk down on that side, and there's a grizzly bear on it. He's dancing back and forth behind this tree with him and a grizzly bear. Just your average day for my cousin when he's out there guiding. Anyway, he would tell me because of the isolation, no cell phone service, the quiet nights, every time he came out of the woods, he wanted to talk about God. Every time. You see, there's a rest for our soul that we're looking for. Jesus invited people to this rest, and maybe you need to step into that rest today. In Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Your soul overwhelmed? Jesus said, come to me. I'm your ultimate rest day. I'm your ultimate sleep-in day. I'm your ultimate kickback, throw off your shoes, and fall into the arms of Jesus and have your soul enjoy the first deep rest you've ever experienced in your life. The writer of Hebrews tells us that that ultimate rest, we enter into it through faith in Jesus. Hebrews 4.10, for he who has entered his rest, speaking of Jesus, His rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. I'm no longer trying to work my way to be accepted by God. I simply realize that he's finished the work and all I can do is receive it and enjoy it by faith. He's done the work. And I get to soak it up. Lastly, when people try to give us a hard time about a Sabbath or about food or different things, legalisms that they try to bring us into. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Once again, he is our rest. He is our fulfillment. He is our nutrition, spiritually speaking. Moving on to verse 4 through 6 here in Genesis 2, we see misting. Misting It's an unusual story here, or part of the creation story, when it tells us this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Automatic sprinkler system. Pretty cool, huh? Right? For all planet Earth. The ecosystem was very different. The flood was going to change everything as we continue through the Genesis story. But before then, this, uh, the humidity, the water vapor, and just the dynamic of the ecosystem. Think about it. And this seems to be all around the globe. Uh, Adam and Eve, they have no clothes and it's the perfect temperature. I don't know what it is to have run around naked and have the perfect temperature, but whatever that perfect temperature is, that's what it was. And every day, just with the mist, you know, you have evaporation. God has created the, the incredible hydrology of the earth those who are into meteorology and those different things, when you just study it, it's fascinating. It's the perfect ratio. There's 70, over 70% of the Earth's land mass is ocean, right? And, and so the water evaporates into the atmosphere, 
and then it condensates in clouds, and then it comes over the earth, and it's the perfect ratio of water to land mass to water the earth. But prior to that, you have evaporation, condensation, then precipitation. But when something's just fog or mist, they call it suspension. It's not even precipitation. It's just misting. You know, when you wake up in the morning, there's dew. There's dew on the ground. There's dew on your windshield. There's dew everywhere. And and it's the perfect amount to water this planet. You see, everything (laughs) pre-chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis is God's plan and God's ideal and God's perfection. Chapter 3 enters the fall and sin and the curse of humanity and the earth and ah, all the mess we're in today. Somebody says, when I see Adam in heaven, I'm going to smack him right in the mouth. (laughs) Say, well, you know, if Adam wouldn't have messed it up, you would have. (laughs) So uh, give Adam a break, would you? Give give him a break. (laughs) This misting that, that took place. Well, then we have forming. This is a beautiful story because sometimes you just feel like you're nothing. You're... I want you to know, you're not nothing, but you're the closest thing to nothing you could be. You're dust. Look at it in verse 7. Forming. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Hebrew word is rock. It's, It's a word that sounds like breath. And he breathes not only life as we would think of his lungs being filled with breath, but it also is his spirit because at this time, Adam and Eve are going to be the... Uh, threefold being, the trinity, the triune being that God had created them in perfect harmony. They were body, soul, and spirit. Now after the fall, the spiritual part's what died, and that's what has to be born again. But they were out of fellowship with God after this. But at this time, he breathes in him life. He has fellowship. He has communication. God comes in the cool of every day and just hangs out with Adam and Eve and talks to them. How dynamic. But it says that he does it from the dust of the ground. You go, come on. I mean, now, really, honestly, you and I are made up of the elements that are basically in the earth. Did you know that? Check out this this graph here, just how we're made up. 65% of your body is oxygen. 18% of your body is carbon. 10% of your body is hydrogen. 3% of your body is nitrogen. Now, all those, uh, I mean, the the three there are gases. And then check this out. These are other trace amounts. This is the other 7%, okay? And I didn't even tap into water because you're, (laughs) by and large, just a tall drink of water. (laughs) 7% trace elements include, I don't know if you just get on, you know, you, do you take this along with your vitamin C? Boron, <laughs> chromium, cobalt, copper. You, you need some, why do you need some copper inside of you? Well, you know, to be a healthy dirt ball, you just got to have it. There's fluorine, iodine, iron. You know, you got to have iron. You have manganese. You have that word. You have this <laughs> selenium. You have silicon, you have tin, you know, you got, you're just like a tin can with some water inside. Vanadium and zinc, all of these things. This is what you're made up of. You go, yes, but I'm an anointed child. You're an anointed dirt ball. <laughs> you and I, we're anointed and yet realize 
He formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed life. And this is this dynamic of creation that you and I have. You see, back in chapter 1, you see, all of these things are the beginning of everything. Understanding who he is. Understanding who you are. It told us back in Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28, he gives us such important insight. He tells us that we were made in his image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What's it mean to be created in his image? God doesn't have flesh and bones, so what's he talking about? Well, we can go through a list of things. Do you know what it takes to be a person, first of all? What, what makes a person a person if we're not talking about physical? Because you have to stay away from the physical if we're created in his image in that sense. This is basically just the earth suit. We're going to get a new, he- new body when we get to heaven that is adaptable to that environment. The real you is software. It's not hardware. And so the real you, if you have thoughts, you have thoughts. I can see a look on some of your faces. I'm wondering. You have thoughts, you have emotions, and you have a will. These are the three things that theologians say makes a person. Thoughts, emotions, and a will. Does God have thoughts? Yes. Does he have emotions? Yes. We see him display those and talk about those all the way through Scripture. And he also has a will. He makes decisions, and so do you. We're also created as a moral being because he has given us that DNA of this inner compass of morality. We call it our conscience that is awakened through the fall for Adam and Eve. They don't have it at this point. But to know good and evil. Each one of us in our soul have a conscience. Until you silence that conscience by violating it, and then the Bible says your conscience can be seared with a hot iron. It's like it's carterized into a hard condition and it doesn't even respond anymore. You know that experience where you do something bad and you just feel so, well, I can't believe, I can't believe I did it. And you did it a week later. Oh, I can't believe I did that. And you do it then. Oh, I can't believe I did that. And then it's funny. Hey, let's go do that. Right? It, it's, it's very progressive in your conscience as you violate the conscience. So we're created in his image. We're also creative. We love to create things. God's creative. Look at the heavens and the earth. Look at the flowers. I mean, he could have made one flower. Look at the plethora of flowers. It, God is creative. God is loving. We have the capacity to love and have relationships. All these things we are created in his image. But he also tells us in verse 27, male and female, he created them. He gave us gender. Now, I know there's no confusion about gender today. (laughs) Right? Somebody said the other day there's now 168 gender identifications. Say what? (laughs) I mean, honestly. You have male and female. Now, I understand that because of our fallen sinful nature, oftentimes we want to go against God's will and God's nature, right? If you're a male and you're heterosexual, you may struggle with being faithful in your sexuality with one person. So heterosexual guys struggle with their sexual identity of monogamy, right? They struggle with that. There are others that they're temptations of a different sort. You see, life's kind of like going into a hallway. You ever stepped in one of those hallways at a hotel, and it's a long corridor, and there's all these doors to each side? And as you're going down that hallway in life, each one of us have different propensities and inclinations in our fallen nature. 
Have you ever heard somebody struggle with a particular sin that has never tugged on you one day of your whole life? You hear that and you go, pervert, twisted, creep. But you struggle with something totally different and they look at you. They've never struggled with that. And they look at you, weirdo, creep, what a jerk. Why is that? It's not one size fits all when it comes to our fallen nature and our sin. It's like going down a hallway, and in your life, as you're exploring, you open up a door, and you go in, and that doesn't interest me, and you open up this door, and, oh, that doesn't interest me, and you open up another door, oh, that doesn't interest me. That's why somebody can open up this door and have a glass of wine with dinner, and it's no problem. Another person enters in there and has that glass of wine and doesn't come out for 50 years and dies of cirrhosis of the liver, right? They went in, and you know the ratio of that? About 5% of people struggle with such things, 5%. Same thing with pornography. Some people might open that door, check it out, and go, eh, whatever, my wife's great. And, you know, they're not interested. And another guy enters that door, and pretty soon they're doing time for the next 30 years because they've went so far down that road, they now get busted for child porn or some crazy thing. But some of us have a little bit more, uh, shall we say, social weaknesses. Some people open the door of food. And we go in that door and we kill ourselves with a fork. But we don't talk about that because that's socially acceptable. We call it fellowship, let's go pig out. (laughs) We call this calorie chapel. All right, let's go put on the feed bag. And when we can't get any, we, any more, we get a tampon post and tamp it down and have some more. That's acceptable. You talk about that in public. I'm struggling with my way. I'm struggling with this. Well, people, you, you don't have to talk about it. Everybody can see you're struggling with your way. It's one of those things that's right out there. I would encourage you, just because certain things don't pull on you, Don't throw rocks at those people. They just have different struggles than you do. Have grace and mercy. Because, you know, if you're exposed for what your struggle is, you'd want people to be gracious to you, even though it's not the same thing. See, each one of us have different issues that we struggle with. This male-female thing, when I look at people that are confused about their gender, I just go, man, what a bummer. My heart goes out for them. I mean, it's really a struggle. They, they're tempted by the opposite sex, so they want to transform their body so that they can meet that desire. And no matter what, it's a dead end. Because at the end of the day, at the end of life, they're still genetically. I mean, you can take all the hormones, but at the end of the day, you're still not that. You know? So what a hard thing. My heart goes out to them. I, and honestly, you guys, I'm just really thankful that's not a thing for me. Honestly. But if it was, what a drag, right? If that's my cup of tea, if I open that door to that hallway and I go, not coming out for the next 30 years, what a bummer. You really have to kind of reevaluate how big God's grace is to rescue anybody and everybody with every issue under the sun. Because you see, immature minds only want to understand people that think just like them. And you have to be a little bigger than that. Isn't it fascinating that the common people heard Jesus gladly? 
They, just, they were just attracted to him like a magnet. Now, having said all of this, we realize also that Paul the Apostle told us in this experience of Adam being formed, we have, uh, um, oh, just one more thing, excuse me, before I move on in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. He also gave us a, a plan and a purpose, and that is just to enjoy the relationship of male-female, be fruitful and multiply, and only a male and female can be fruitful and multiply. It's just, that's how biology works. And I, I know some may not know it. And he also gave us dominion. He said that we might have dominion over this earth. That God gave us as humans a stewardship, not to abuse what he's given us, but be, to be good stewards of it. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five. he says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He became a, a living man. But the last Adam, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus wants to give life to you. He can give it to you now while you're alive. Forgiveness of sins, transformation, power, power to be transformed. I often tell the story of my, my good friend that was at our fellowship I, uh, preaching, and I had a friend that he first came to the church, and we weren't friends at first, and, and he had been a meth addict for 25 years, and he had been in the homosexual lifestyle for 25 years, and he had got married three times trying to go straight with his struggle and all this stuff, and he came to our church, and he got saved, and his name is Jerry, and I love Jerry, and uh, Jerry, would, he would come like just the next week after he gave his life to the Lord, Pastor Rick, Pastor Rick, one week, no men, no meth. I'm like, right on, Jerry, right on, <laughs> right? He gave him life. He gave him power to break through that. Then he told me, second week, you know, Pastor Rick, two weeks. And then this went on, like 16, Jerry, please, I can't take this every single time I see you. I think of men and I think of meth. And I just, can we just love each other, you know, Sunday after Sunday? He goes, okay, I understand. It's just a little TMI, too much information on a consistent basis for you. I had a guy one time in our church, and I had preached the message, and he was a, uh, a uh, well-known personality in our, our community. We had a rather large fellowship. And he came and he was so convicted because he had been living in sexual sin. And we're greeting at the door and, and he's got kind of a big booming voice and he shakes my hand. And, but in my hand, he's put a wad of about 10 condoms. I'm in a lobby with like 100 people around me. <laughs> and I now have a handful of condoms. And I looked at him and I said, what are you trying to do to me? And fortunately, there's a garbage can right there. I just threw it. And here's this big guy. He just begins to weep and cry. And I gave him a big hug and I prayed with him. And he just, you know, he'd been trapped in this place. And he just wanted to give his life to Jesus. I saw him three years later in another community in a Christian bookstore. And I ran into him. And I said, hey, man, how you doing? I haven't seen you. He goes, oh, yeah, I moved out of town shortly after uh, we had had that conversation. And he goes, I want you, that's what we prayed for, for a wife and a family for him. He goes, I want you to meet my new wife and my new son. And he was beaming with the joy of the Lord. You see, the grace of God changes us. You know what, you guys? Uh, we're just a bunch of broken people. We're just one beggar showing the other beggars where the bread is. And when you get puffed up, you see, the thing is, is about the converts of today are the Pharisees of, of tomorrow if you don't want your step. And you're a rock-throwing machine. But may grace and mercy flow from your life. Not compromise, that's a whole different thing. But grace and mercy. Well, we have gardening 
It says in verse 8 and 9, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground of the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God planted its garden. He was going to give Adam something to do. He's going to put him in there. He's going to, you know, I've had people for years tell me, you know, it's the world's oldest profession, and they're always speaking of prostitution. I tell them, point them to this, no, gardening is. It's gardening, not prostitution. Let's be biblical here, folks. So he's going to put him in it, and, and God's going to make, this is the most incredible garden with these beautiful trees and luscious fruit, but in the midst of this garden, just like in the garden that God has put you in in your life, your neighborhood, your life, your work, your family, your environment, every single one of us, God has planted you in a garden, and he's providing for you, and he's taking care of you, and he's giving you meaning, and he's giving you purpose, but there is the tree of life. And the tree of life, as long as Adam and Eve ate of the tree of life, they would live forever. That's one of those uh, superfoods, I think. <laughs> and the tree of life also is in heaven, along with the river of life. So we get the tree of life and the river of life in heaven. And the cool trees, according to the book of Revelation, every 30 days, every month, they, these trees are really cool hybrids. They grow 12 different kinds of fruit on them, the tree of life. Well, Adam could eat of the tree of life and live forever. But if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's what we'll be seeing probably in two weeks, it would bring death. You see, this is a big problem that people have with God in the first place. They go, well, if God knew, which God knows all things, right? He has this incredible thing called foreknowledge. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything. Why, why would God put the tree there in the first place? Why not just put the tree of life? Why, why the knowledge of good and evil? Because God has given man, who has created in his image, he's given him thoughts, emotions, and a will to either obey or disobey. He's given him this power, this moral will, this volition, and he, he want, otherwise humans would be robots. If I, if I propose to my wife and put a gun to her head, I probably couldn't really be confident in the yes that she gave me, right? Because as soon as she could escape, she's out of here and I'm going to jail. Because, you know, when there's 7 billion people on the planet and you ask a beautiful girl to marry you, if she says no, right, there's a lot of other fish in the sea. But you see, the thing is, in order for love to be meaningful, you know, Jesus said over and over to his disciples, he said, if you love me you will raise your hands in church. Did he say that? No. If you love me, you'll sing loud. No. If you love me, you'll give an offering. No. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus said the highest act of love is hearing Jesus' heart and saying, yes, Lord. It's the highest act of love in a child of God's heart. I want to obey. Even when it hurts, I mean, sometimes God's asking you to do things that just stink and hurts, doesn't it? Like, I don't want to do that. And the Lord's like, yeah, but you love me. There's things I'll do for Jesus that I would never do for anyone else on the planet. Standing up here is one of them. 
I would rather be like the rest of you. Come late, sit on the back row, leave early, do nothing. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty cool thing to me, right? But he says, if you love me, every day of your life, you have the tree of life. You can just enjoy drawing from the resources of Jesus. Or you can tap into that which is going to produce death. Paul said it this way to the Galatians. He said, you know, if you sow to the spirit, you reap life. You sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. I mean, it's just, that's the way it works. And sadly, a lot of people don't believe that. Kids grow up in Christian homes and they don't believe that. They've got to go put it to the test so they go live in the world like crazy. Mom and dad said the world's really bad, so I'm going to go see for myself. And they go out there and moms and dads are so troubled. Oh, I just tell them, hey, they're just working on their testimony. Don't sweat it. They're just working on their testimony. I know, but I did that. I, I know. You, you've been telling them for years to learn from all your lessons. And you know what? Kids are funny. They don't want to learn from you. They want to learn themselves. So you have to, as Paul did, the elders there at Ephesus, I tell parents, you have to commend your children. It means to give. You have to commend your children. I give my children to the word of his grace. And I trust God. I've trained them in the ways of the Lord. I've invested God's word. I pray for him all the time. I love him. And I'm just going to give him to God. My grandmother did that to my father. My father was 35, a rebel. He had been running for God his whole life. And my grandmother was a diligent prayer warrior. She was praying for him every day. And she was this fiery little, little uh, Irish girl from Oki, uh, Oklahoma. So she was an Irish Oki. Talk about a combo. And, and she had a really strong accent. And my dad called one day, and he knew his mom was praying for him, and his, I mean, the wheels were coming off his life, and he knew it was all her fault. And so he called her and said, Mom, I know what you're doing to me. I want you to stop it. My grandmother said, No, sir. I done put you the, on the altar to Jesus, and I'm not taking you off. So there. <laughs> he got saved shortly after that. He didn't really say You know, if, you, if your mom was praying for you, just give up. She ain't going to shut up, so just give up. This ain't going to happen. But now we have the watering. It's one thing to have the garden, but you have to have the watershed, the water resource. And, and it flows from this place called Eden. It says in verse 10, now the river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. And we have these four rivers that are mentioned. Only one today that we're aware of, and that is the Euphrates that goes through modern day Iraq. But it also tells us something fascinating. You see, you have to, the, the miracle of water, and water is this illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit all the way through the Bible, because wherever there's water, there's life, and wherever there's not water, it's just barrenness. I come from a place called the Magic Valley, and when you read, there's a place that massacre rocks, and uh, you can go into this museum, and it's all of these uh, entries from the diaries of the uh, uh, frontiersmen that came in wagon trains across Idaho, and they have... Even to this day, you can see by uh, the uh, cold water rest area, you take a little walk, and the wagon wheels have cut into the lava rock, uh, so you can still see the evidence of the Oregon Trail. And they talk about that this place, I mean, the, the easiest way to uh, uh, summarize it is that this place is like hell with big flies. And then there's Indians, because it's massacre rocks, and Indians attacked them, and six people died, and this and that. And so when you read it, it's just, it's... The Snake River is just desert and barrenness. But something happened in 1900 
called the Carry Act. The government went into partnership with private equity companies, and they built a canal system. They built a dam, at, at, it's called Milner Dam by Burley, Idaho, of the Snake River. And they poured the water to the two sides of the valley, on the north side of the canyon and the south side. And they carved out of the most barren, hell-like place with flies, according to the pioneers, 600,000 acres of rich, abundant farmland. That's why my grandparents on both sides came to that valley. My mom's parents came in 1939. My dad's parents came in 1941 because they heard that there was this magic valley because magically it appeared when you did one thing, you got water to it. See, that's what your life's like. It's like hell with flies until the work of God's spirit floods in and begins to change you and transform you and to watch the mystery and the abundant life of salvation. Your life's not the same anymore, is it? Because of what Jesus has done in your life, what he has done in my life is amazing. He also says something fascinating in the midst of this creation story. He wants us to know that precious metals and precious stones to Genesis 2. Did you notice that when we read it in verse 12? It says, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stones are there. Precious metals and precious stones. There's going to be, obviously, commerce. There's going to be standards with uh, metals and uh, business and all of these different things. There's going to be equi- or, uh, financial transactions. And that's a part of this creation that is going to go forward for you and I. As we wrap it up and we think about this incredible time of Genesis 1 and 2, I can't help but take the last few minutes and just mention a few things. Because you can't talk about Genesis 1 and 2 without talking about the elephant in the room. What about evolution, right? Most of us grew up in public or school systems. Maybe you're a, you might be a science teacher and evolution is the thing. Well, you know, I, I know that some of you believe this little image right here. Right? There you are. That's me in the front with my briefcase. Right? I came from this, this world into the business world. And, and, and this is, is, is this not the accepted narrative around the world? This is the accepted narrative. Okay? This is how we would put it in words. From the goo to the zoo to you. Right, that's, that's your life, that's your story. Where'd you come from? Your monkey is an uncle. So, or your uncle is a monkey, I guess. Well, if you think about it, well, you go, well, we found the missing link because you see we have these guys. We have found the missing link. We have Nebraska man and Piltdown man and Peking man and Java man and Neanderthal man and Cro-Magnon man and New Guinea man. We have all these, right? We, we have proof. They're in the Smithsonian, you know. Do you know that the research on every single one of them has debunked that they're legit? Every single one of them. The first one, Nebraska man, they built a whole replica around one find, the, the tooth of an extinct pig. And they created Nebraska man, the missing link. Piltdown man, they had was discovered in 1912, and it was an elaborate hoax. They had taken the ape 
the jaw of an ape, a human skull, and then filed down the teeth so that it fit all together. And then when examined in 1953 by uh, those who knew better, they exposed it. Peking man Davidson Black found a single tooth in a garbage dump in Peking, China. And then when challenged on it, he got a big grant of $80,000. But then when challenged on it, oh, he lost the, the tooth. And there, there was like no, but he got 80 grand. So I guess it was worth it. Java man Eugene Dubois discovered in 1891 on the island of Java. And at the end of his, about 15 years before he died, he finally, because it was challenged the whole time, and a German scientist said it's an ape, and then he finally said it was a small ape, and finally confessed to what the bones were. Then there was Neanderthal man. This was, a, a, you know, a bit, oh, we found Neanderthal. It was actually when they, a, a doctor examined it. It was a guy with arthritis. He was just bent over from the arthritis. And then uh, Cro-Magnum man. He was uh, a guy with a human's, the you know, capacity of a human skull and everything. It was just, just a man. And then New Guinea man was actually <laughs> a, a man, but they found the tribe actually living not far from where they found the bones. So, but all these things, you'll, you'll see them sometimes in still uh, textbooks. And you know, 500,000 years ago, these things took place because you see, if you're determined to push God out of your mind, you have to have something that replaces Genesis 1 and 2, right? You don't want to talk about God. Let's, let's make it scientific. Okay, are we going to make it scientific? Okay. Well, we'll check this out. We, uh, <laughs> I got this article. I love this. This is from Evolution News and Science Today. You know, just a little light reading last week for over coffee. Evolution News and Science Today. This is the title. It came out March... 2024, uh, excuse me, March 24, 2020, and it was to give people hope in the midst of the pandemic. That's kind of funny, because their, their message was crisis in the chemistry of origins, and the whole thing's why evolution doesn't work. This is in Evolution News and Science Today, their own magazine, and this is what it says, all is not well in the halls of biology. And to distill it, it says, how can the mere interaction of simple chemicals in the primordial ocean have produced life as it is presently understood? That is the question. The signs do not bode well for the standard answers given, and some investigators are suggesting that our two approaches will not converge, meaning that uh, intelligent design and this idea of evolution. But Francis Crick and James Watson discovered DNA in 1953. They won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. It was the greatest discovery in 100 years and assured research in this field for the next 100 years. Understandably, the greatest discovery in this century. And this is what Francis Crick, who is the expert, expert in DNA, he discovered it. He says this, the immensity of complex coded, precisely sequenced information absolutely is absolutely staggering. The DNA evidence speaks of intelligent information-bearing design. For life to form by chance is mathematically virtually impossible. (laughs) 
Somebody said the likelihood of evolution actually working, that just some big bang or uh, some amoeba finally, you know, crawling out of the soup and becoming humanity is about the same odds as a tornado hitting a junkyard and creating a 747. <laughs> right? Because the thing is, as soon as I point at something, you immediately see design. If I, I say, this is an iPhone 10 Max, you go, wow, the design. You think of Steve Jobs, you think of Apple, you think of all those things, right? You think of design. Now, if all of the pieces in their raw form were in the dirt, and I give it 3.5 billion years, because this somehow, I don't know, what's the miracle of time? If you just give something billions of years, it means creation happens? If, you, if all the elements were in the dirt and you just maybe even bring in an explosion, have you ever seen an explosion, the one like Nashville, create something beautiful? It destroys everything. Have you ever dis- d- discovered that time, uh, that second law of entropy, everything declines? What would your house look like if you came back in 500 years without any maintenance? It'd be non-existent, right? I mean, is it going to be, it's bigger now and it's a mansion? It's no longer the shack that it is, <laughs> right? You come back, <laughs> it looks like, uh, you know, Bill Gates lives there or something. It, I mean, really, honestly, have you ever just thought about the logic of it? Does it make any sense? Do you know this is all mechanical? Do you know how complex this body is? Do you know how complex your body is? The, the chemistry of it and everything that God's designed, the miracle of conception and birth and a little child growing in the womb. The ability, even though they will do AI and they'll try to do robots and stuff, the, the gift of an eight-year-old running across the lawn and playing catch with his friend, playing football, the ability of your computer brain to realize distance and timing and catch. You know how complicated that is? If you tried to implement that with a robot? It's like, humans are the greatest miracle on the planet. And God created you in his image. (laughs) And this is the thing. Charles, Charles Darwin said this. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications by theory, my theory would absolutely break down, but I can find no such case. He says if they finally discover the, the, the basic structure of a cell, and if it's complex, my whole story breaks down. But he, he hadn't, they didn't have the ability in his day to discover it. I want you to know that when people choose, and, and this is what the Lord says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, he says the plant world, four times he says, all the plants reproduce what? According to their kind, what? Their DNA. And in animal life, in chapter 1, verses 21 and uh, 24 through 25, ten times between these two passages, he says, according to their kind, According to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind. People say, well, there's mutations here and there, but at the end of the day, you guys, a dog is still a dog is a dog. Because otherwise, our fossil record, which is absolutely expansive, there is not one 
single artifact of transitional forms. Not one. We got dinosaurs, we got prehistoric creatures, we got, we got everything. And I just simply say, show me the missing link. Because my ancestors are from Missouri. The show me state. Got to show me. There is no missing link. You see, the Bible has the beginning of everything. Even in the beginning, the Lord gave us the, the whole timing thing, right? In chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Then the Lord God said, Let there, the lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and for years. Let the greater light rule the day, the lesser light rule the night. He gave us a 24-hour period of time. He gave us seven days a week. He gave us 30 days. Really, it's average of 27 to 28 days, but they had a leap year. He gave us all of this stuff. You see, the Bible doesn't claim to be a scientific book, but when it declares something to be true and it borders on scientific, it's accurate. It's accurate. It's not in contradiction to it. You see, even in the day when people thought the earth was flat and on the backs of elephants, the Bible taught, Job 26, 7, he stretches out the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. It's just hanging out there. God said it. It's just hanging out there. He also told them in Scripture that it was round. It wasn't flat. In Job 26.10, he drew a circle on uh, a cir- circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. But ultimately, people want to reject the truth. Fascinating passage. The greatest chapter on faith in all the Bible starts with this premise. In Hebrews 11.3, says, By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Everything you see was built out of something invisible. Even that's a scientific statement. What's invisible? What's this thing built of? Atoms. What am I built of? Atoms. And do you know there's actually more space than this than there is solid with the electrons and how this whole thing, of it works? That's what he says. But then he says this in verse 6. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who sincerely seek him. You see, faith is not only in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but it's also faith in the other dimensions of who God is, his nature to create, his nature to make you in his image. The Bible's a big book, but if you have faith, you can enjoy all of the promises in it. But if you have unbelief, the promises don't mean much. You got a whole new year that you are on the fresh threshold of. We are on the doorstep of 2021. And you can either face this year with faith, hope, and love. Faith, you can trust God. Hope, the certainty of coming good to you as a child of God because God is good. And you can walk in love with people and care about them and invest and cultivate relationships. See, Genesis is the beginning of everything. But not until it is the beginning of everything for you and your own soul and your own heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for meeting us in this place. We thank you for the food and the nourishment to strengthen us from your word. 
I just pray for those, Lord, who are really struggling right now. They're afraid and anxious about this coming year. Not sure what to do with it. Lord, I just pray that you would comfort their hearts right now. I pray for those who are struggling with things that just have the, a chokehold on them, Lord, in sin. And, and Lord, you want to help them break free. It's part of this journey, part of the messiness in this season of their life. And Lord, you want to bring them through. I pray for those, Lord, who are seeking you. You promised if we will seek you with all of our hearts, that we will find you. So, Lord, may they find you as they look to you and put their trust in you. We ask it in your powerful, wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand together. I want to be the first to uh, wish you a happy new year because the next time I see you, it'll be a new year. God bless you. God speak. Let's worship.